Greetings, dear listeners. We had the great Walter Russell Mead on this week to talk about his magisterial new book, Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. The book is anchored in the story of U.S.-Israeli relations, but the book is really about America, how its beliefs, its sense of identity, and its fiercely democratic politics create its foreign policy. It's a book only Walter could write, a worthy follow-up to his famous work, Special Providence. We hope you enjoy the rich conversation as much as we did, and check out the book as a result. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, consider becoming one at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to bonus content like the second half of the interview with Walter. We debate whether America is an idea or a country, whether Shadi is going to rehabilitate neoconservatism, and whether American optimism about the world can be restored. On to the show. So I don't know, Walter. I guess I guess the the um, the fun thing about reading this book is that that as long as I've known you, almost you've been working on this book, <laughs> and uh, um, and I remember uh, when you started working on the book, uh, the the uh, the the sort of core uh, character of interest uh, was also in the news back then, as he is today, as sort of a a a figure of uh, of um, of concern and criticism among the intellectuals, John Mearsheimer. So I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about the the genesis of the book and and um, and uh, and and how it came to be. All right. Well, I, you know, I don't want to make it too much about John Mearsheimer because I don't really think it is specifically. But if you go back to the kind of early mid two thousands, there were a lot of people who thought or who said that the Iraq War was essentially something that a bunch of American Jewish neoconservatives were foisting on the rest of the country because Israel wanted the war. And also that the policies of the Bush administration represented the power of the American Jewish community. And, you know, knowing as many members of the American Jewish community as I do, I, you know, that, that struck me as odd. And if you look into it, um, you know, look closely into it, very few people in Israel believe that sort of neoconservative theories that, you know, the Arab world was simply waiting for American troops to come in and establish democracy. And then, as some people actually argued at that time, Iraq would embrace Israel because as a democracy, there would be no trouble. This is not the way Israelis think. Um, and at the same time, if you look to the polls or even if you look to the statistics on how were American Jewish voters voting and how were American Jewish campaign contributors contributing, they were going much more for Bush's opponents than for Bush. And so you ask yourself, why not just in the United States, but around the world, are people essentially blaming the American Jewish community for the actions of a president it voted against and for policies that it doesn't like? Hmm. And that, you know, it struck me whenever you find something that is clearly not true, but that everybody thinks, then, you know, as a, as a writer, as a thinker, I say, well, that's something I want to know more about. Uh, and 
and it got me involved in a long process. And maybe you say a couple words about the Israel Lobby, the book that John Mearsheimer and um, Stephen Walt, Walt co-authored, yeah. I guess sometime in the mid-2000s. I, I just wanted to bring that up because I remember that it was a pretty big deal at the time. And some people liked it. A lot of people um, didn't like it for, for reasons that you, you mentioned. But maybe just bring us back to what that book um, contributed or didn't contribute to the public conversation for for listeners who may not remember okay. that whole um, hullabaloo. All right. Well, uh, it's very long ago, but let me see what I can do. That you know, it. I mean, there's always been a certain idea that the reason America has a pro-Israel policy or that the forces in America supporting a pro-Israel policy can basically be traced back to the American Jewish community and perhaps also, in some cases, to white evangelicals. And this, is, this, is, this was a view long before the Israel lobby was written. It's a view long after the Israel lobby has been written. It's a very persistent point of view. And I think, again, it, it became... Uh, and there's certain areas in American intellectual life where that view, um, you know, seems to, to put down roots. And one of them, I, I think, is that there are realist scholars of international relations who don't see any real American national interest or much American national interest in the Middle East. And they see this tremendous American concentration on the Middle East. I mean, when you, when you look, I think there has simply been no diplomatic process in the history of the United States that has consumed the attention of so many presidents and secretaries of state for so many years as the, uh, the so-called peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, and so realists, and, and you have the two Gulf Wars, uh, deep relationships with Saudi Arabia, the various conflicts uh, with Iran or before that, the American involvement with the Shah. And so people who don't see, who are realists and believe that states act in accordance with their interests, but who don't see Nash, a strong national interest of any kind in the Middle East, look at that and it's something that cries out for an explanation. And the only explanation that really comes to mind is an Israel, you know, somebody, somebody in America who's very powerful and cares less about the American national interests than about the welfare of Israel. And I think that's how you you get to this. The 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 book is um, anchored in in U.S. Israeli relations and the history of, but it really struck me reading it um, how much it's uh, it's really a continuation of. I mean, again, not surprisingly, it's it's your book, but of 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 uh, the previous books that you've written about this, the book about um, about America and about American foreign policy, how it's made. If you can say a little bit about about you know the national interests, um, I don't have the the passage here highlighted, uh, but but early on, you sort of really I think problematize that exact question of what right. constitutes national interest, and especially in the American context. Um, the first part of the, the the book is is incredibly enlightening for for me uh, as as you know uh, mostly a, a secular person who doesn't even know this history that well about the the role of religion and uh, the role of Protestantism in in shaping conceptions of what the national interest right. might be. Yeah, the national interest is one of these concepts that seems radiantly clear and obvious, um, but 
in actual practice turns out to be very complicated. In some ways, it's like the true value of a stock, of a share of stock. Uh, and everyone says, well, the price, you know, there are all these market theories about why the price at any given moment does or doesn't represent the reflect the true value of a stock. But I mean, inherently, a stock price depends on things that you can't possibly know, like future events, other companies and the actions of other companies, technologies that may be invented, legislative acts, public taste. So um, when people think about the value of the stock, inevitably what they're doing is they're bringing to it a lot of assumptions about how the world works, where how the world is going to work, how economics works, where politics is headed, all of these things. And out of that, they come to a sense of what what is a share of IBM going to be worth. Um, the national interest is a lot like that. Um, you know, for example, just to take, you know, what should we be doing about China and Taiwan? I'm saying this because we're doing this podcast at a time where Speaker Pelosi has just visited Taiwan, the great consternation. Um, Well, you might say, well, the national interest really requires us to take a strong stand because an aggressive China uh, is threatening Taiwan. If it takes Taiwan, Japan will be isolated and so on and so on and so on. And that's true. But then suppose, you know, two years from now, there's a massive economic failure in China the central government more or less collapses and China goes through a period in some ways comparable to what Russia did after 1989, the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, then everybody would say, boy, all those people who thought that the American national interest required a massive military buildup in Taiwan, how stupid were they? And how, you know, and the point is that there is really no way we can know today what is going to happen in China, and therefore questions of the national interest with respect to China. Or Xi Jinping might might have a heart attack and be replaced by someone who just wants good relations. Or, or better yet, Xi Jinping might, might suddenly have a religious awakening and decide that he needed to become the man, great man of peace. Anything could happen. Hmm. So the national interest is never some, it's, it's not like you don't determine the national interest the way a scientist or a meteorologist determines the temperature. Look at a good thermometer and you just know. So how do people think about the national interest? Um, what strikes them as probable? What events in the world strike them as important and significant while others are insignificant? All of this depends on cultural assumptions, economic perceptions, personal experience, and then in a democratic society where you have all kinds of groups, different lobbies, different political parties, different ideological groups, all competing to control government and all constantly making trade-offs and compromises in order to advance other things. You know, the, the relationship of the objective foreign national interest, which can only rarely be seen clearly and can never be known for sure, and actual policy choices at any given moment is always going to be a very complex thing. Hmm. Hmm. And I think it becomes complicated when we talk about Israel, because I think your your book does an amazing job of making the case that when we talk about Israel, we're not really just talking about Israel. Israel is a proxy. It's a symbol. It represents all these other things in the American imagination. Um, and that there's almost a sense that, uh, you know, Israel is some kind of shining city on the hill. It's an example of divine providence. 
you know, at, at least that's that's how some people view it. And particularly evangelicals might attach some of these ideas to Israel. And I think that those deep cultural assumptions, I think your argument is that, okay, there might be a pro-Israel lobby, but we're missing the point if we don't look at the deep cultural um, aspects that make Americans feel close to Israel. I mean, Israel re- represents something to them. Well, also, it's, you know, the, the cause and effect relationship between public sentiment and the strength of a lobby is pretty important. Um, you know, so, for example, I mean, American predisposition in favor of Zionism is privileged pro-Zionist political organization among Jews, American Jews, over other kinds of political organization. So in the 1930s, American Jews looking at the world could see sort of, you know, several things that they were interested in. Many American Jews at the time were strong socialists and wanted the New Deal to move much further to the left. Um, Many American Jews were deeply worried about the rise of Hitler and anti-Semitism generally in Europe at that time and wanted much stronger American policies about anti-Semitism. Many others were really worried about Jews being trapped in anti-Semitic Europe and wanted more immigration visas for Jews to come to the United States. But those kinds of lobbying were were bitterly criticized, you know, sort of you raise the immigration specter and then somebody whose grandmother is a Polish Christian and would like to come to America says, what, you want your Jewish grandmother to jump the line and get in ahead of my grandmother? And there was a sense of those kinds of lobbies torched off anti-Semitism. But on the other hand, American Jews saying, well, we want a homeland, like the Irish have a homeland and the Polish have a homeland, and we want America to support that aspiration. You know, that got a very different reception. And in some, you know, the American Jewish community um, in the 1920s, 30s, and up really until early 40s, the, the leadership of the American Jewish community is pretty consistently anti-Zionist. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, America... A country makes its lobbies. Then again, you look at, you try to think about the power of different political lobbies. One thing I say in the book is our discussion of lobbies today is confused in much the same way at the time of the founding fathers, the discussion of parties was confused. And everybody said, oh, I don't want to be the representative of a party. I want to be the representative of the nation. And in the same way, I don't want today we'd say I don't want to be in, representing a special interest. I want to represent the general interest. I don't want to be a lobby. Um, but in fact, parties were essential and lobbies are essential in a complex democratic society. How else can people who share a common set of interests, whether they're ideological like human rights or whether they're economic like steel manufacturers, how can they sort of affect the political process? How can the political process work without lobbies? It can't. So you look, you have to think about their different lobbies and different kinds of lobbies. I find the tobacco lobby really interesting because I'm old enough to remember when the tobacco lobby was considered the irresistible lobby in American politics. Nobody could touch the tobacco lobby. When the tobacco lobby said a certain politician was against smokers' rights, that was the phrase. <laughs> wow. that, would, that would torch your career. Um, 
and the smoker, you know, and the and the tobacco, big tobacco was considered, you know, the great behemoth of Capitol Hill. Some years later, if it was found out that a politician had accepted contributions from the tobacco lobby, like that could torch your career. So public sentiment changed and the power of the lobby changed. Now, there's still a tobacco lobby. Hmm. You saw that movie probably, Thank You for Not Smoking. Mm -hmm. And it still works. But in the old days, the the, the tobacco lobby would seek publicity. It would want everyone to know what it was what it was standing for. Today, the tobacco lobby would just as soon deal in back rooms and not have a lot of publicity. Its opponents want the publicity. I think that the Israel lobby um, functions in our society more like the AARP or the NRA to to take two Hmm. very different lobbies that are extremely powerful that many politicians really don't want to cross but not so much because there is this lobby that constitutes a kind of artificial external force in society, but because if you get called anti-gun in large chunks of the country, that's the end of your career. If you're called anti-social security just about anywhere, that's the end of your career. And a lot of the country, if you're, if you're called anti-Israel, that can be the end of your career. So – I do want to ask, though, about Democratic primaries. I was just reading a New York Times piece earlier mm. today that I think captures a somewhat new development where APAC, the um, the major pro-Israel lobby for those, um, that's the, the acronym, um, and um, they have a new super PAC, which has been trying to um, tip the balance towards one candidate right. over the other in specific districts. Um, and that's become a controversy, you know, among Democrats and progressives. And the reason I bring that up is because in these areas, you have younger Democrats who are much more critical of Israel. So to be called critical of Israel doesn't actually hurt you that much. There may actually be young Democrats who want that and who like that. Right, right. But then APAC comes in and puts a lot of money behind the candidate who's more pro-Israel. And that one could argue that that is somewhat artificial, especially, you know, these aren't particularly important races. And then this super PAC is coming in and putting a lot of money mm-hmm. in some random district. I mean, how would you how, how would you sort of situate that in, in terms of understanding um, artificial versus? You know? right. Well, I, I think first thing I'd probably say is that let's keep a sense of perspective. As you say, these are mostly somewhat unimportant races. They tend to be very safe democratic seats, and the ideological uh, differences between the candidates may not be huge. Um, so the you know we should be careful if uh, a lobby group shows the power to affect the outcome in eight out of ten um, house rep, you know house votes, and pro-Israel legislation routinely goes through the house sort of four ten to to some very small number. We're not we're not talking about some massive intervention that is fundamentally altering the balance of American politics. But at the same time, we should look, you know, one should also compare it, say the, um, uh, you know, this this idea of a lobby figuring out where there's a gap where you can go in and be very influential is not something APAC invented. I think of um, 
suddenly everybody is looking at state secretary of state elections around the country as races that had previously attracted very little money or outside interest. But now after January 6th, these things are seen as potentially extremely consequential. Money is flooding into races. Or you look at the district attorney races where uh, criminal justice reform groups suddenly decided, okay, almost no one pays attention to these races. And so a relatively small investment can lead to a relatively small, uh, relatively dramatic result. And it has, at least for a while, but then counterforces come in. And so I think myself, I see this as absolutely natural and normal part of the ebb and flow of American politics. This happens all the time on all kinds of issues in both parties and representing all kinds of both foreign and domestic concerns. So again, the fact that one of these is front page news in the New York Times and discussed as sort of a major factor while... Other interventions aren't really don't don't attract that kind of interest or concern. Uh, to me, that's that's again just the, the the fact that wherever the subject of Israel or the or the concept of Jews is is involved, suddenly the conversation gets much more intense and emotional, and people watch it much more carefully. Yeah. Um, what's for me, the uh, the really stunning sort of part of the book um, is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the sort of first principles kind of stuff, and and really the the notion of progress, um, the the how 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 embedded the idea of progress is in America, and yet also how that changes throughout the sort of course of the book. Um, really compelling part of the, the the history of the book for me was the the shift from 19th century Americans um, with ideas about the world, how it's changing, the role of nationalism and how it's tied to democracy, how they think it's tied to democracy and how it, it should be playing out in the world, how that runs into sort of perhaps two things at once. One is the reality of nationalism in Europe and the collapse of the empires and what that that creates. Um, and then the reality uh, after World War II of America having to sort of take on a a um, a bigger role in the world. Um, what's striking to me about it is is I think for someone like me, uh, again coming more from a European background, though now you know uh, fully American uh, uh, to all my European uh, colleagues and friends and family. Um, is 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 again the the question of religion how that 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 plays into it and how the american approach to enlightenment is much more tied to a religious concept of salvation than um than i, I the more rationalist european uh, approach to it um and also has this notion of optimism to it i i guess the 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 prompt there is to, to ask you to maybe talk a little bit about that, uh, that question and, and where America is today. Well, you know, the, the formative moments in American, sort of the development of American political culture came out of just a very unusual time in world history, very significant in all kinds of ways. Um, but the period sort of, uh, you know, from the American Revolution or certainly the end of the Napoleonic War up through maybe, you know, the late closing years of the 19th century, 
was, was this period of tremendous optimism, at least in the Atlantic world. Obviously, other places in the world were having very different experiences at this time. But in the Atlantic world, which Americans knew, it looked as if all kinds of fabulous things were happening. And their own history seemed to put them at the kind of spear tip of human progress. And the narrative of history that, inst- that just instinctively resonated with the common sense of most white Americans at this time, and frankly, not just white Americans, was um, this notion that there'd been a wonderful peak of classical history, the Greeks and the Romans, the ancient Hebrews, pure Christianity in the early centuries. And then you have the Roman Empire, the barbarian invasion, stagnation, the Middle Ages, the learning is lost, everything is lost, but that a process of renewal had started. It starts with the Renaissance, when scholars rediscover the ancient manuscripts and the ancient culture of Greece and Rome, and these ideas and artistic techniques begin to come out again. And then it takes the next step in the English-speaking world for Protestants, it was the Reformation, which was in religion what the Renaissance was in in general culture, they believe, the recovery of the ancient purity of Christian faith and doctrine. And then on top of that comes the, dis- the sort of rediscovery of the political liberty of the ancient world. And you get the glorious revolution in England in 1688 and the American Revolution, which they see as reestablishing the principles that made Athens great, that made Rome great in its Republican days, and so on. So, and on, and with this comes the technological, the early signs of technological and scientific re- revolution, which is obviously opening the door to a new level of human prosperity. They can't not see this as either God or the force working some massive positive transformation. And then they look at the United States, this country that if it holds together is obviously going to be a great power, maybe the greatest in the world, which is imbued like no other with these dynamic principles that have the capacity to change the world. This is what they go roaring into the 19th century. You know, that's the momentum behind the way Americans develop a self-conception. And I think much of history since then has been Americans encountering the increasing complexities of the world, both inside and outside the country. And yet somehow this original sense of optimism and progress doesn't leave or leaves only very slowly and reluctantly. Um, And again, one of the reasons why Israel and U.S.-Israel relations, or there there are two sort of big reasons why they figured. Number one is that Americans began to see themselves as a kind of a latter-day version of Israel. That is, the ancient Hebrews, you know, the only monotheistic people in the ancient world, carrying a truth that was meant for all humanity, but just in this one small nation— Americans would look at their historical situation, read the Hebrew scriptures, which contain the, this history, and could not help in a way, but, but not see the par- parallels to their own situation. Then beyond that, there was this, as they thought about this great historic renewal, 
And this would be true of non-religious as well as religious Americans. Um, and by the way, there are actually quite a few non-religious Americans in the 19th century. This mm. idea that America's always been sort of this incredibly religious country now secularizing. And actually, it's really a, a story of waves, um, mm. peaks and valleys of various kinds. But in any case, they looked at you know ancient Greece, ancient Israel, ancient Rome – and you read the literature and the history and, oh, my goodness, those countries were rich and beautiful. Their landscapes were stunningly beautiful. The people were noble and virtuous and powerful and free. Now, and if you look at all of them in the 19th century, Jews, poor, miserable Palestine. Mark Twain compared it, said it was almost as bad as Arizona in terms <laughs> of how it looked. Um, Greece, you know, rocky, barren, the people poor under the Ottoman Empire, Rome, the, the Italy divided between all these dynasties and poor and the peasants superstitious and oppressed, malarial, all of this. And the Americans were saying, you know, if these people would go back to our values, which are the true classical values, you know, become farmers, uh, live under democracy then their old greatness could return. And if that glory returns, then everybody in the world will see that America is right and that the American sense of history is the, is the right reading. And that will encourage people in other places to join the bandwagon of glory and progress. So Americans were incredibly interested in the Greek War of Independence. Julia Ward Howe's future husband actually was a decorated hero of that war. They were, in, they were enthralled by the movement for Italian unification and independence. They actually tried to get Garibaldi to take a commission as a general in the U.S. Civil War. And they looked at the prospect of the Jews returning to Palestine in much the same way. And Americans actually tried to persuade Jews to start farming in Palestine as a way of beginning to rekindle this. You can go now to the American Colony Hotel in uh, in Jerusalem and see something that was built as one of these colonizing, originally part of this colonizing effort. So when the Jewish Zionist movement comes along, Americans don't think, oh, my gosh, those Jews, they're going to try to impose another one of their outlandish ideas on us. And what are they going to drag us through now? It's more like, oh, finally, the Jews are figuring it out. Now really good things can get started. But but the interesting thing, and and to to build on this, because this is the the, the flip side of of this enlightenment. You you have the an early chapter uh, on on Theodore Herzl and and uh, his coming to realize uh, in in through his short life that that the enlightenment in Europe is in fact not going to save the Jews. That that the prospect of all these enlightenment values, all this optimism, is he has the premonition that that tra tragically comes true. Uh, uh, several decades after he dies. Um, and the flip side is that American Jews, even as sort of Zionist movements appear in America, they say, no, 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 stop with this shit, please. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're integrated. This is good. So in many ways, America is the enlightenment that works. And it's the European enlightenment that fails, uh, for Jews at least, uh, but maybe even more broadly. Well, I do think that you know, that in trying to understand the differences between many American Jews and many Israeli Jews, Israeli Jews are people for whom Herzl was right and that the liberal enlightenment would fail to save the Jews. 
American Jews are people for whom Herzl was wrong. And in um, the experience of American Jews, liberal values have saved the Jews and given American Jews sort of the kind of integration and acceptance that Jews in other other countries historically could only dream of. So, you know, the, the differences between, you know, both American and Israeli Jews, I think, are quite sincere in their approaches to these problems. And the contentions between them, which by no means are not new, more than 100 years old, this this quarrel, in a sense, between the the Zionist majority in Israel and the somewhat more liberal majority in, in America, it's, it's a fundamental element of 20th and now 21st century Jewish life. Hmm. Um, but yes, I've kind of figured, Demir, you would want to bring up problems of limits of the <laughs> Enlightenment and its failures and shortcomings. Something told me that, that this might just possibly be coming. And it is true that in the 19th century, this sort of American arc of history ideology was that all things work together for good, that in particular, nationalism, democracy, and peace go hand in hand. And that as Europe, as the Democrat, as nationalism swept across Europe, it would lead to democratic revolutions. And those democratic revolutions would create a Europe of peaceful nation states, each glorying in the diversity that was the beautiful continent of Europe and, uh, you know, each going forward in its own way, a great band of brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, so this story though of, of progress, I think maybe it's worth, it's worth bringing up that in this current moment, I think it seems to me that a lot of Americans are losing faith in all the things that you just mentioned. I mean, this narrative arc, this idea that um, if it's good for America, that goodness will emanate in our foreign policy, in the global order, and so forth. I think if you ask most Americans today, do you see the world getting better because of American influence or even without American influence? I think they'll probably tell a darker story of decline. Um, and that, I think, reflects on their own lack of faith in the American idea, especially young American liberals who don't really feel very enthusiastic about America from a creedal perspective right. or the role that it plays in the world. They tend to think that the more America gets involved in, for, in, in foreign lands, the more it messes things up. And I think you bring this up in, in the book in a very, I think, persuasive way that if you look at U.S. engagement in the Middle East in particular and you focus on that, it does sort of make make one question whether the U.S. can be competent, whether it can actually do good, because it's been an absolute mess. If we look particularly at the post-9-11 post U.S. policy in the Middle East, it isn't a great record. It's a record of disappointment, tragedy, of overreach. So I think that our generation, and we kind of had our formative years post-9-11, I think it's very easy to look at that and say, American power, forget about it. We mess things up. So how do you think that we can regain a sense of that progress? Or should we be pessimistic and say maybe our time has passed mm -hmm. and the coming American story is one of disappointment and self-doubt? It's a, it's a really good question. You know, as a, as a boomer, 
I find it a fascinating question because what you're describing is exactly how my generation felt in the 1970s. Hmm. Vietnam War, complete disaster, revelation of all the Cold War CIA stuff. Plus, right, uh, people forget this often, but the boomer generation in the 70s was hard hit economically. The inflation, the, the rise in oil prices, the most common trope of, of generational sort of uh, punditry back then was we would be the first generation who would not, American generation, to live with a lower standard of living than our parents. And not only that, we were the post-racial secular generation that represented a fundamental break with American cultural traditions. So sometimes as a boomer, when I hear younger people talk that way, I just think it's so cute and so sweet. <laughs> Reminds me of, oh, it's just like us. You want to pinch their cheeks. But I, but I, I restrain. I refrain <laughs> from this. Um, but I think that's actually, again, that's um, – and, and by the way, if you talk to, say, people from the greatest generation, their youth was the 1930s. American capitalism has failed. This was talk about the the young the young left being disillusioned. They were a lot of them were in the commun- communist party in the thirties. So this notion of you know periodic crises of American of this American ideology um, is I think actually it's it's one of the patterns that you see. Now I don't mean to say from this that there's some kind of deterministic, well, as as the boomers went on to, you know, therefore everyone else will blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to say that, but I am trying to say that there's, this is not new. And, and in fact, because, you know, since because American ideology is to some degree grounded in the idea that capitalism brings social progress as well as economic progress, and capitalism as an economic system is one that does undergo periodic crises and periodic revolutions that are profoundly destabilizing, it could hardly be otherwise that American society would not be one which experienced regular episodic kind of moments of deep distress and unrest. Now, yeah. obviously, where it goes depends on what happens next. You know, what happened in the 19, you know, after this incredible distress of the 1970s, uh, interest rates go down, the economy starts growing, the boomers are all buying houses. And uh, while, you know, it didn't work out the same for everybody, the g- younger generations look at the boomers and, oh, you, you were the ones, everything, you, you're the golden generation, everything you wanted, you got. You also got Reagan, though, who, as a leader, was able to tap into, and the the latter half of the book talks about the the, the Sunbelt Coalition that he's able to, to right. basically bring together, and how that plays into U.S.-Israeli um, relationships, and how Israel is almost again like a, a tote- plays a totemic role in sort of uh, keeping that together. What's striking about that parallel, though, the Boomer parallel, is that um, I mean, I guess one could could point at the call it the the you know. Uh, the dark years of, of Nixon, where there was just America seemed unmoored from its moral uh, mm-hmm. uh, bases. But then, I don't know, I, you've, you've lived through both of them. Trump seems to me to have, though, taken it to a different level, right? That in the sense that that if we, we, we debate this all the time, you know, uh, I, I think we generally agree Trump's a phenomenon as much as anything else of these larger things that you're talking about, but also of this kind of... Uh, uh, 
ongoing sense of doubt about the project and he pops up and represents it to the nth degree right. and and uh makes use of it to the nth degree i mean pushes yeah. the ball forward and in as, a way yeah and as we often say too i think a recurring theme on the podcast is that when you look back i mean we're too young to know what it was like in the 60s or 70s but young young folks the youngsters they don't realize how lucky they are in the sense that political violence was much worse in the 60s. And then everyone's freaking out now. And there's all this catastrophism about the coming civil war, civil conflict. And, um, you know, if you had to choose between, and also when it comes to racism, that, oh, you know, look how look how bad America is today. We're a lot better today than we were in the 60s, at least maybe Demir would take issue with the way I'm framing that. But, um, and it's always... I think that Americans, every 10 to 20 years, there's this slew of books about American decline. And we we can't get ourselves out of the moment. When we're in the moment, we can't see that broader context, which I think you're pointing to, that we always go through this wave of self-doubt and decline. And historically, we have been able to transcend that and get back on track. Right. Now, I think people maybe today, they would say, well, this time it's different. Right. This time the decline is real and it will stay with us and we won't be able to recover. And they use Trump, as you're saying, Demir, as basically the entry point to make that argument because they say this time is different because Trump is different, because Trump has no real parallel in those previous waves of decline. Yeah, well, you know, I think... I think it's a it's a very good thing for American history that Huey Long was shot when he was, since I think Huey Long actually was a greater threat as an individual uh, to the American system than Trump was. Um, and you, you know, he, it's if you haven't uh, read a good biography of Huey Long, hmm. um, because basically after after just a few years in the governor's mansion in Louisiana, he'd organized things so. Every state job and every penny of state funds had to be approved by him. He had a, a control over Louisiana that no American politician has ever had. And he had the he combined the sort of rhetorical skill and performance skill with a real policy mind and a focus. It was is extraordinary. Um, so it's not the fir- again, I would say even there, it's not the first time. Uh, obviously, Huey Long never made it as president, um, and I'm, I think his a Huey Long presidency would have been more consequential than Trump's term hmm. was. Hmm. Um, but look, I, I do think, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a rich question that you're, set of questions that you're asking. Number one, let, let me just say, somebody who does even remember the '50s, I am that old. Um, all my life, America has been in decline. When I was in elementary school, Russia had launched the Sputnik. Americans sucked at math. We were way behind. The Soviet Union was going to eating our lunch in space. And you could look up at sky and see, and the American space program was a failure. They ripped up the entire national math curriculum. So I was, you know, as an elementary school student, I'm taking math classes reflecting our fear of Soviet triumph. Then Kennedy gets elected on the missile gap. The Soviets are ahead of us in missiles. 
missile gap fades and it's the balance of payments deficit and Germany and for, you know, France is eating our lunch. We're going to lose the gold standard and that'll mean the end of the dollar's roll and blah, 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 blah. Then the Vietnam War. America has lost its innocence forever. We've been defeated. We've been revealed. All of our crimes are out. Our innocent. We will never recover. Vietnam syndrome. Then Nixon. You know, and I'm even leaving out civil, the civil the riots of the '60s, the revelations of American racism, all of this stuff. All right. Then the 70s, oil inflation, oil stagnation, inflation. It just goes on. It sounds like it's terrible. I mean, I think it's it's incredible. Like when when you put it that way, it does sound like the the era before we were politically conscious was actually pretty terrible. Obviously, in the moment, you probably thought it was okay. Um, I don't know. I think no, a- I, I actually, you know, we used to worry. I mean, well, you especially had nuclear yeah, war, right? right? I mean, right. that was the thing. You were hiding from, you had nuclear duck and cover. We didn't have that. That's- right. Look, as a young public policy intellectual, I wrote many, many wonderful books and articles about how the American experiment was failing and this was a historic moment. Okay, this is, you know, we felt scared. We felt depressed. We didn't know what the answers were. So, I mean, what I will say now is I won't say that America isn't in decline and that our best days aren't behind us because, frankly, when we talk about the future, was it Yogi Berra is supposed to have said, prediction is always difficult and especially when it involves the future. <laughs> so um, so I'm careful. I don't know what's coming. But, but when somebody wants to tell me this is it, this is the decline, all this, you've got to explain to me first why everybody was wrong in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 20s, and you know when they predicted this before. What, why is your prediction fundamentally different? And what I generally find among the sort of prophets of doom is that they don't really know this history of past yeah moments of fear. And so it's a naive prophecy of doom. I'm totally open to informed, well thought out and articulated prophecies of doom. And some of the things I talk about in the book are concerning, really concerning. But I I do think there's there's entirely too much, let's just call it superficial doomism. But I suppose one argument is that there's so much that you know, this is obviously idealized when people talk about how U.S. foreign policy was conducted in the past. But at least there was some pretense of bipartisan cooperation, some shared ideals that both Republicans and Democrats held when it came to foreign policy. And I suppose the argument now is that Republicans and Democrats are so divided in a way that makes competent or consistent foreign policy in any way very hard to achieve. I, 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 that's that's maybe I one know. version of the argument. I, do, I mean, Demir, is that is that a fair characterization of what some people would say on that polarization now means? Okay, oh, foreign policy, um, partisanship stopped at the water's edge, this idealization, right. and now everything right. is okay. politicized. Answer that, Walter, because I have a different like right. spin on it, but answer that all one right. first. Well, well look um, – First of all, I'd say, actually, you know, you go back and you look at the history of the Truman years and the foreign policy fights in those years, and there was not that much bipartisan comedy. Richard Nixon, as Eisenhower's vice president, ran against Dean Acheson's College of Cowardly Communist Appeasement. 
And, you know, uh, while they didn't actually go with McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, Nixon, came, you know, the, the idea of communists in the State Department, of course, there actually were, though not nearly as many as, um, as McCarthy alleged. But, the, you know, so there, there was actually extremely bitter fighting. There was an America First movement even after World War II. So, and I think the fears around nuclear weapons tended to make it it uh, worse. And over the Vietnam War, you had, you know, hard hats, union workers who supported the Vietnam War beating up student anti-war demonstrations on the street, blood flowing. Um, and you go back and you look at what people said and did about, you know, Lyndon Johnson is a war criminal. They put on a play, uh, McBird, uh, a takeoff on Macbeth with Johnson having killed Kennedy in this evil plan to take over the country and fight the Vietnam War, et cetera. It was unbelievable. And, and um, you know, so there have been moments of, uh, you know, there have been areas of consensus, but think about the Reagan administration, the fights over the, the Contra, the aid to Nicaragua, the Iran-Contra scandal, um, huge demonstrations, the anti-nuclear demonstrations in the early 1980s, amazing speeches about Reagan is going to bring on nuclear war and destroy the world. Hmm. So, again, there's this idealized version of the happy, happy past, and now we're plunged into misery and polarization. This must mean the end. So the the, the thing this is my spin on that. Um, and it is from, from, you know, something that I was telling Shadi right before you got here, Walter, the, the, I feel like it's something I've internalized from working with you, uh, and, and reading you all these years. Um, special Providence, uh, the way you describe how foreign policy is made is through this, uh, heuristic of the four schools of thought that feed into and are inextricable from Americanism and that they, in some balance at any one point, they feed into what comes out of it. Um, reading this book, also, you get that. You, it's, it's a book about, once it gets into the 20th century, once it gets Truman on, it, it's, it's about how politics shape outcomes and how no amount of ideas or any single idea by itself actually shapes the final outcome, how it's it's the confluence of sort of a cultural background, um, the various ideas and things that drive various actors that then sort of lead to this. And so, you know, in, in that telling, um, it's almost as if the conflict and this partisanship and the divisions, um, no single one of them is quote unquote right. Sometimes they win out one over the other. These are all sort of piecemeal conflicts that happen in politics. And then out of this emerges a kind of policy, which then again, you know, uh, in more in the sort of God and gold, your other book uh, uh, version sort of leads to and sort of surprises the rest of the world with America sort of, you know, uh, going on and triumphing nevertheless, almost despite itself, almost despite uh, its best and brightest thinkers and leaders who think <laughs> that they know what the hell they're doing. I mean, so that that's my sort of, uh, you know, that's how I approach yeah. a lot of this stuff, you know, informed. And it struck me again with this book. I don't know. Is that is is that fair, though? I well, look, I do say and I think this is this is an important thing to keep in mind that in my mind, American foreign policy has been on the wrong track in certain ways since the end of the Cold War. 
that fundamentally the American policy elite, Republican, Democratic, what have you, misread the nature of the change that came at the end of the Cold War. And I compare it to the era of the 19, of, of the 1920s and 30s, when, again, I think the Americans fundamentally misread the nature of the world they were in, not so much because they were intellectually stupid as because they wanted to match, they, they wanted to live up to their ideals, but they didn't want to do a lot of heavy lifting. And so they brought in magical thinking that we don't need to be concerned about the balance of power in Europe. We don't need to worry about the rise of fascism. You know, there are all these things that are going to make it work anyway. And so you were able to, uh, you know, thanks to a kind of ideologically imbued magical thinking, you, you, you could think that your foreign policy was going to get you where you wanted it to be because the world was basically moving in your direction anyway. And all you needed to do was give it a little nudge here and there. And I think we, we moved heavily into that after 1990. And, and so the American elite developed, you know, and not just the elite because a lot of popular folks were in it too, a very grandiose plan of global transformation. We were going to, the whole world was going to become democratic. The whole world was going to become sort of capitalist democratic. Gender relations were going to change everywhere. Religions were going to get along with each other everywhere. I mean, really the most revolutionary and fundamental transformation anybody's ever imagined for the human race. And we were going to accomplish that while cutting the defense budget, cutting the foreign aid budget, cutting the, you know, we would do much, much less in the world than we did during the Cold War and get much, much more out of it in terms of the things that we wanted. And there was never a lot of public support for American democracy promotion around the world or anything. It's, you know, you look at the polls now, the sort of last thing on the list people want to send troops for is to promote democracy somewhere else. Um, so there was a tremendous mismatch between what the public wanted in terms of foreign policy and what, what the government was trying to achieve in both parties. And it was that, that gap was the elites thought it was okay because they genuinely believed that their goals were so achievable that you wouldn't actually need a lot of support from the public. It would just happen. Um, and the public, you know, wasn't that interested. It wasn't costing us very much. We weren't, you know, 1990, 92. All right, fine. We'll bomb Kosovo. But even that was like not easy to do to get the support for. Um, but it was just not a big deal. And then beginning with 911 and then going, I think, into the 2020s where Russia and China are really emerging and suddenly it's a much more dangerous world, you find the elites deeply embedded in a paradigm about foreign policy, which they've never sold. And now at the moment, their paradigm is, it's not working. The world is not, you know, free trade with China was going to make, and free trade with Mexico would make everyone rich and everyone democratic. China's not democratic. Mexico's not democratic. And Americans don't feel a lot richer than they did before NAFTA and the WTO and the security threats and 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 but to be but to be fair democracy did spread 
considerably. Like if you if you yeah. look at the number of democracies, the biggest increase of the past century happened right after right. the fall of the Soviet Union, where you have transitions throughout Latin America, Asia, right. um, Eastern Europe, right. and so forth. Now there has been. A, a little bit of a retrenchment I'd in say recent not years. Not just a little bit, I think, Shadi. But it's still a it's still a very high. If you look at the number of um, of electoral and liberal democracies as Freedom House rates them, it's still yeah. a very it's right. still pretty high. I'm not saying you know, I'm, and I'm not actually unlike Demir. I'm not going to rule out the possibility of progress. You know, as a you know, but I think that the. You know, progress is not a streetcar. It doesn't come stop at, you know, your stop on schedule. And to count on the arc of history to rescue your foreign policy, you know, is is dangerous and naive and will get you into all yeah. kinds of horrible trouble, as I think we've seen. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, consider becoming one at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to the rest of this conversation with Walter. Hope to see you in the bonus.